0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit rothcheese.com.
2: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org.
3: Hello, this is Lisa Held coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. So today I'm here with Peter Stein, an oyster farmer and owner of Pico Oysters on Long Island. Peter, thanks for coming in. Happy to be here. Um, I was walking here um, just now, and it is like so beautiful out, and the sun is shining, and I was thinking, man, I wish we were at the oyster farm, like out on the water. Yeah, <laughs> right.
4: These these days are are rare in March. I think.
3: Yeah, um, it just it felt like, oh man, if we were like out and you were showing me how the way. Wind... <laughs> I was I was on the
4: farm yesterday and uh, in the sunshine and you know to be able to kind of take some layers off in this time of year is very nice because four weeks ago it was bitter cold and I was just you know, barely getting by without my fingers numbing.
3: Right. (laughs) Well, so, um, where are you you at in the season and like, what, what is the oyster season in New York and where, like, um, I'm curious, you know, how much of the winter you're out there and.
4: Sure. (laughs) Uh, so the winter months and what I would define as winter months with regard to the growth cycle of oysters is more or less beginning of November, uh, to May, uh, exactly when in May depends on the year in terms of the water temperature. So during those months, oysters are not growing. Uh, they are essentially sitting dormant or hibernating. And that means that we can't, what I would loosely define as cultivate the oyster, but we can harvest.
3: Oh, interesting.
4: Um, so we can harvest year round as long as we have market sized product to be harvesting, but we are not cultivating. Uh, during those November to May months.
3: Okay, so more harvesting takes place then during those months, or no? Harvesting can happen on a consistent
4: basis year-round. I mean, that depends on demand, and it depends from farm to farm, operation to operation, what that farm owner and operator chooses to do. Uh, You know, I could sell all of my product in the month of August if I wanted to, uh, Mm. and just like flood the market, so to speak with as many Pico oysters as I can get my hands on. And then, um, but that, that's a little bit of a misstatement almost as I'm saying it and hearing myself (laughs) say that, uh, there's a little bit of, uh, fibbing going on there in that, you know, not every oyster is ready at the same time. Um, and, much the same as like humans or a, or a litter of cats or dogs. Like you have kind of runts of the litter, so to speak, where you have a slower growing oyster and you have a faster growing oyster. So, you know, even oysters that I put in that are starting out at the same size and going into the water at the same time will grow at a different rate. Um, and, because of that they're not all ready to be harvested at the same time and then I just decide when to bring them to market. Got it. Um,
3: so like how many are you typically harvesting like a week would you say?
4: Currently my current harvest on a weekly basis is somewhere in like the mid-thousands wow. um, and that will grow. Uh, you know I'm very much trying to increase the size of my business um, and bring more and more oysters to market. Uh, it's not it's much more easily said than done, right. Uh, but um, right now we're in the mid thousands on a weekly basis okay. average, uh, and hopefully that will creep up into like more like the five digits. Mm. Um, hopefully, as soon as this summer.
3: Wow. Okay. Um, so I, I want to get like more into the actual process of farming oysters, and, and we were talking before. This is like very exciting because you know on this show we're pretty much always talking about land food, not seafood. (laughs) Land food is kind of a weird term, but (laughs) you know what I mean. Um, Because when you think farming, you think growing things, you know. Sure, um, I mean,
4: I think, you know, when you say agriculture or farm, like nine out of 10 people, or probably even more than that, 99 out of 100 people are going to think cornfields and, uh, tomatoes and, you know, pick your own berry places in the summer.
3: Exactly. Yeah. Um, but so I want to get into like the nitty gritty of how this works, but before we do that, um, let's step back for a second and just tell me a little bit about how you got into oyster farming because your, your operation is relatively new, right?
4: That's true. Uh, I got into oyster farming because I found myself out of a job at the end of 2015. Mm. Um, I've always had a fascination with and love for the water. Uh, And having had a desk job, um, my unanticipated uh, unemployment uh, gave me the kind of headspace to think about what I wanted to be doing with my career um, and think about things that I could maybe do that were a little bit off the beaten path that might be a lot more fun and could still uh, generate a, a living for myself. Right. Um, I've always had a connection um, to the east end of Long Island. I uh, spent a lot of time out there as a kid and mm-hmm. as an adult, uh, fishing and seining and clamming, you name it. Like I was doing it in order to be able to kind of be involved in the water. And that was all on a recreational basis. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I started to explore different options uh, during this kind of white space moment in my career, I started to have conversations with people who I knew out on the east end of Long Island, learned more than I knew previously about oyster farming Mm -hmm. um, and aquaculture, more broadly speaking, um, and wound up kind of by the end of 2016, um, actually buying some bottom land. So I actually Mm -hmm. own a little piece of the bay, um, which is kind of, you know, when we're talking about Conceptualizing a farm, yeah. like it's tough to even conceptualize the fact that I own a piece of the bay. Right. Um, I don't actually own the water rights, but I own the bottom land. Huh. Um, so, and it's measured in acres, the same way that you would buy a property in you know suburbia or something. Right. Um, so, that kind of fascination with the water and love for the water, as well as just a, an appreciation for where our food comes from, and. The concept or the idea that you can go into a grocery store in New York City, and pretty much any day of the year, 365 days, be able to buy a head of lettuce—that, if you start to really unpack that, like <laughs> that's that's pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, and where that lettuce is coming from is even more incredible because, by and large, it's coming from California. California. <laughs> um, and what is lettuce? It's 95 percent water. And what's happening in California, a decade-plus-long drought. Right. So in a weird way, California is exporting water in the form of lettuce. Yeah. Um, so these kinds of uh, concepts and thoughts and things that I was reading uh, in late 2015, early 2016 led me to think about our food system. Uh, I'm no food system expert, mm-hmm. but uh, aquaculture is an incredibly sustainable source of healthy, good food. Uh, and in the meantime, doing a benefit for the, for the environment and the water and estuaries that I grew up fishing in and and loving. Um, so that kind of was served as, as motivation for it. Um, and then as I started to, um, you know, dig deeper into or, or dive into as the, Mm -hmm. as the pun may uh, (laughs) be more apt, um, I started to really fall in love with with oyster farming and, and aquaculture as well. Uh, and I mean, some people call it like regenerative ocean farming, hmm. um, which is a, kind of a concept that you know uh, maybe we can unpack yeah, a little bit further. I definitely further. want to talk about that. <laughs> um, but it, it's it, what we are doing uh, as a as a mariculturist or an aquaculturist oyster farmer. Um, and I speak on hopefully on behalf of all the other oyster farmers out there is, Mm -hmm. is really providing a huge net benefit for the Bay. Mm. Um, and, and for the fish that live there and, and, uh, the health of those waters.
3: Right. Yeah. So let's come back to that. But so let's talk a little bit about what it looks like, like the operation. Um, so people can kind of visualize it if, if they've never seen an oyster farm or, um, you mentioned this idea of sort of owning this section of the bay Mm -hmm. um so what's in it like what's the equipment um kind of give us a visual
4: sure um so every farm is going to be a little bit different Mm -hmm. um and there are i'm having a difficult time thinking about where to start in terms of trying to describe (laughs) all of this Um,
3: explain oyster farming in its entirety (laughs) in three sentences (laughs) Uh,
4: so Every farm is going to be a little bit different um, mm-hmm. in terms of the operation and the equipment that they're using. Um, and some of that, some of those differences have to do with the different tides uh, okay. or the different zone in which they're farming. So I'm in what's called a subtitle zone. So basically my oysters are 24-7 submerged. Mm. Whereas like if you go up to the Cape, for example, uh, where at low tide, there's all of a sudden like two miles worth of beach that wasn't there at high tide. Mm. There are a lot of farms in what's, that would be described as an intertidal zone. Okay. Um, so I need to get on a boat in order to access my farm. Whereas like a lot of other farms in intertidal zones, uh, you you walk into the mud, into the water. Mm. Um, now, what's really, I think, kind of cool and almost mysterious about my farm is that you could literally boat on a recreational boat, towing a water skier. You could be going through my farm and not really even know that it's there, except for a few buoys on the surface of the water that you're going to see.
3: Because it's all underneath. It's, it's all just, underwater. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
4: Um, and it could be eight feet deep. It could be 18 feet deep. Um,
3: and that's cool because then you're not really disrupting like that area, like you said, for people who are just out in the bay. Yeah, right? there's, like,
4: there's, uh, there are... We, we face a number of what we call NIMBY issues, not in my backyard, um, uh, in oyster farming, but... Um, you know, obviously, I'm I'm a little bit biased here. I didn't know
3: there was a term for that. NIMBY. Yeah, huh. yeah, wow. it comes
4: okay. up more in in agriculture than you may think. Right. Um. So, there's there's a little bit more nimby issues than than we'd like, but from my perspective, oyster farming is not really causing all that much of a disruption to recreational boating. Right. Um. So to give you a sense as to the equipment that I'm using and, you know, so you're out in the middle of the bay uh, and all you would see if you didn't know it was there, all you really see are are basically like lobster trap buoys Mm. um, that people use for decoration and stuff. Mm -hmm. Those types of buoys are sitting there on the surface and what's below them are these big cages. And I use a little bit of different equipment than some other oyster farmers, which is why I say that each farm is different. Um, My equipment is kind of like... oyster farming Lincoln logs in that I'm using these big trays okay. that have a three foot square footprint and they're about four inches high. And those trays are made out of wire mesh and each tray kind of stacks on top of the other tray below it. Mm. Um, and I have a stack of these trays that are then bridled together with some chain and, uh, a metal base, um, to make sure that they stay together. Okay. Um, and, and, and then I haul that up from the bottom and depending on the size of the oyster in that cage, which we're tracking with our own records. Okay. So I, I have a pretty good sense when I pull up and I pull the I pull cage number one, I know pretty close what size oyster I'm gonna have in that mm. cage. So if if that is a harvest cage, then I'm gonna be dumping those oysters out to what we call kind of cull through them. So you know, then going almost oyster by oyster and saying, okay, this is mar- this is market ready. I'm going to be bringing that to market, and this is not market ready. It needs to go back in the water for mm. more baking time. Got it. Um,
3: it's called baking? No, time. no, no. I just <laughs>
4: I made that up. Okay. Um, so if it is definitively not a market cage, uh, then those oysters are going to be coming up onto the deck of the boat and going through what we call a tumbler. Um, a tumbler is a machine that... Uh, is elongated bingo wheel okay. um, or like a front-loading uh, clothes washer, washing machine. Um, it's a long, almost 10-foot-long cylinder on its side at a slight angle so that uh, gravity, as the wheel turns, um, gravity will help move the oysters through that wheel. And the wheel has different sections of different sized mesh. And that as the oysters go through that wheel, they tumble, as the name of the equipment alludes to, they tumble mm. through there like a rock tumbler uh, to polish rocks. Okay. And what happens is, is as they move through that wheel, there are more or less three important things that are happening. One, they're being cleaned off. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're get, getting rid of debris or any sort of like little predators, like we get these little things called oyster drills. Um, those are are, huh. are getting uh, kind of washed off of them. Okay. Uh, number two, they're getting sorted by size. So the oysters passing over those different sized mesh, smaller oysters are gonna start to fall through. And as they fall through, then we put them back in the water into uh, the appropriate sized mesh trays that then get stacked and submerged. Uh, And then the third thing that is almost a little counterintuitive is they're actually, the oysters are kind of like getting damaged. The growth edge, the rounded edge of the oyster is actually getting chipped. And I analogize it to pruning a plant. Right when you prune a plant, the plant grows back more robust, hardier, and the same is true with the oyster. When you chip that edge of the oyster, they're kind of growing back, and it helps to promote growth in a counterintuitive way, huh. um, as well as create some uniformity in size and shape of the oyster. Um, I mean, we're all aiming for kind of that perfect teardrop-shaped oyster with a nice deep cup, right? Um, and a, a tumbler helps to uh you know it's a natural product so you're not going to get it 100% of the time yeah. but a tumbler aims to help the farmer produce those oysters that way
3: interesting so that y- you sort of like chip off that edge and then it goes back in and it it, it has
4: to go back in yeah. yeah even if it's even if it's market size i can't take that oyster and bring it to market because you're you're chipping it enough that it might be a very small chip or a small hole in that shell, but you you are kind of in many cases exposing the meat of the oyster to the outside. Um, so it has to go back in, and the oyster then heals. It essentially, I mean, I'm I'm giving it a, a raspberry, right? Yeah. I mean, imagine like injuring yourself and needing a, a week yeah. or two to heal. Um, so the oyster has to go back in the water and, and heal and repair itself, and it and in so doing, it's kind of growing back stronger, right? Um, like the shell is going to help it's going to help the shell to be a little bit harder and that cup to be a little bit deeper. And, uh, the, the oyster improves the, the quality of the oyster should improve.
3: Right. Well, and there's so much variation in oysters is, so are you growing more than one kind or I guess that's one question. (laughs) And the next question is like, how does the way that you farm them affect the, the taste of an oyster, the shape that you know—they they vary so much. Is that always just a different species of oyster, or does the, your met, do your methods affect the actual?
4: So it, it's a far more complicated question. than <laughs> I think you maybe were anticipating. Um, the there are only five species of oysters that are cultivated and consumed by humans across the globe.
3: Interesting.
4: Uh, by and large, there is one. Species of oyster on the East Coast. What is going to impact the quality of the oyster, the shape, the size, the taste is number one, the primary factor in that is what we call miroir, right? So you Mm. may be familiar with the term terroir in wine, right? Where a Pinot Noir grape grown in Burgundy and a Pinot Noir grape grown in Uh, Chile and one grown in South Africa and one grown in in California. Same grape, it's going to taste a bit different because of the terroir of the environment in which it was grown. Mm -hmm. The same is true with an oyster. Same species, same genus and species, but grown in Florida versus grown in New York versus mm-hmm. grown in Maine, it's going to have quite a different, different flavor profile. And it doesn't even have to be that diverse of a regionally speaking, geographically speaking, like even different parts of the Bay because mm. of the different, uh, food sources and, huh. and inlets and underwater rivers right. and all that sort of stuff impacts even within a Bay, the even within body Pecan of water. Bay, yeah. you can have pretty different gradations hmm. of, of flavor profiles. Um, then we get into kind of quality size of the oyster and that's going to be more uh, determined by the grower themselves. Right? So I mentioned, um, the type of equipment that I use is a little bit different than a lot of the equipment that it's, that's used by other oyster farmers out there. I'm not the only guy out there using this type of equipment, but Mm. I'd say it's, it's less frequent that you'd come across somebody using my type of equipment versus other types. I think it grows a little bit better of an oyster. Mm. Um, but obviously I'm biased. Um, <laughs> so, you know, uh, but you are going to see different growers bringing different size oysters to market. Um, I, I definitely uh, try to skew a little bit larger. Mm. Um, but, you know...
3: I, Just that, because, like, you think that there's demand for larger ones? or um,
4: You know, I, I think that there's a certain perceived value in a little bit mm. of a larger oyster, um, whether I'm right on that or not. I, I don't know. Uh, but I think, you know, if I'm buying oysters and I get a dozen oysters and I pay, I mean, in some places in New York city, you could pay $48 for a dozen oysters. Like, and I get this puny little like two inch oyster (laughs) on my plate. I feel shortchanged. Yeah. Right. Um, whereas if I get a three and a half inch oyster, I get a little bit more of a mouthful. Like Mm -hmm. there's some substance to that. And that's, I think kind of, at least in my own mental approach to this, that's the driving factor for me to try to produce larger oysters. I also have some restaurants that I sell to that want the larger oyster because they're maybe using it for cooking or something like that. Mm. Um, whereas like a four inch oyster, most diners are going to be a little bit taken aback or, um, you know, not really enjoy the texture and the the size of that s- squishy, juicy kind of oyster being that large in their, in in your mouth.
3: (laughs) Right. Yeah. I also, I read something, um, about, um, the shell. Like, do you have to, um, use specific methods in order to get the shells to a certain like density? Like I was reading if you put oysters on the bottom, um, like, you know, right on the bottom of the bay that the shells grow thicker or like, I have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm asking. <laughs> no,
4: I mean, you know, I, I, I don't know a hundred percent what you read. Um, you know, aquacultured oysters, right? So oysters that I'm growing, mm-hmm. we are optimizing to move that oyster through its growth cycle and to market size as quickly as we can. Uh, therefore the shells are going to tend to be a bit more brittle, mm. um, contributing factors to shell density and kind of instruct structural integrity of the, of the oyster shell. I mean, you can get into ocean acidification if we mm. wanted to, you could get into temperature of the water, um, nutrients that are available to it. But I, I think speaking with broad brushstrokes in mind, uh, we are going to tend to have a little bit more of a brittle shell with an aquacultured oyster than a natural harvest, a wild, a wild oyster. oyster. Okay. Um, so,
3: but that doesn't really matter for right. Like, I well, mean, well,
4: the I mean. only reason why it would matter um, is more to the restaurateur or the mm. shucker of the oyster than to the diner, right? Got it. Because if that shell, when you shuck it, um, and it's tough for listeners to see the motion that I'm making <laughs> with my hands, but it, as you shuck that oyster, if that shell kind of blows up or mm. disintegrates, for it's it's unappealing to the diner. You lose a lot of the the liquor, the brine of yeah. the oyster because the shell has then been damaged and that cup is no longer there. Okay, um, so that's where it matters more than with um, the quality of the actual meat of the oyster itself.
3: Got it. Okay, um, okay. We need to take a quick break. Um, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about sustainability um, and y- some of those things you mentioned earlier about. Um, Regenerative aquaculture. Um, Yeah, and maybe even the demand too. I'd like to talk a little bit about the market for oysters. Um, So we'll be right back.
1: Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the US specialty cheese movement. Roth is in its 25th year of making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning alpine-style cheeses under the name Grand Cru. Fresh Wisconsin milk, combined with expertise and affinage, is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Sarchois was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit RothCheese.com.
2: Hey there, seems like you like podcasts. My name is Eli Sussman. I'm a chef and restaurant owner, and I've got a great podcast right here on Heritage Radio Network called The Line. On my show, I interview chefs and restaurateurs about the trajectory of their career. It's a one-on-one conversation where we talk about where it all started to where they are cooking now and everything in between. You can find The Line everywhere you get your podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. network.org.
3: All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio. I'm here with Peter Stein from Pico Oysters. um, And we've been talking about oyster farming, sort of a lot about the logistics of how it gets done. Um, So it came up a couple times, this idea that um, oysters are sort of a sustainable crop, right? Very much so. Um, And I think, well one place that my mind goes is when we talk about farming on land, um, one of the big um, issues that I get into a lot with, in, with other guests is inputs, right? Like when you farm, there's so, you use a lot of resources to farm. And sure. one of the biggest sources of um, resources is you need inputs. You need to feed um, animals. You need to fertilize fertil- a lot. Exactly. Um, so, I I mean that's like the when I think about oysters one of the where my mind goes right away is like are there any inputs at all no (laughs) not even
4: no yeah Uh, I mean it's it's the bay right Uh, so the food that's already available in the bay is is what the oyster feeds on so Mm -hmm. I'm not using water I'm not using fertilizer Uh, I mean the only real input is is sweat equity (laughs) Um, you know and and there I don't want to minimize that. Uh, there's a lot of work that goes into farming an oyster uh, and bringing that oyster to market. Mm-hmm. But in terms of natural resources, uh, in terms of, I mean, let's let's just think about like water, right? Yeah. Uh, you look at widely published reports around uh, cattle farming, pig farming. I mean, lettuce farming. Uh, the amount of water per, like. I don't know what metric they use in terms of number of calories per gallon of water used mm-hmm. or anything like that, but I mean the numbers are off the charts. Like I think it's like two thousand gallons of water per pound of beef. Yeah, I mean I'm probably wrong on that, so don't quote me on it. But like, I mean it's a it's astounding. It's yeah, it's um, for sure. And there's zero input into oyster farming.
3: Yeah. And I mean, it's it's an interesting comparison because oysters are a a source of protein. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, they're they're small, but they're
4: they're very nutritious. You gotta eat a lot of
3: them. Yeah, uh, but they are nutritious. They're nutrient dense. Yes. Um, Yeah. Um, And so so that's like so no inputs. That's that's awesome. And then what about um, the effect that oyster farming has on ecosystems and like on the bay?
4: Right. So I think that's that's where we get the term regenerative ocean farming. And, and that's not a, a term that I coined. Um,
3: I've actually never heard it used. Um, so
4: I'm definitely trying to evangelize. On <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, two friends of mine um, who are far smarter than I am in this world uh, of, of commercial fishing and aquaculture, um, who are certainly people who you might want to have on on this podcast mm. or, or other colleagues of yours, um, are, uh, are Brent... Bren Smith at at Greenwave mm. um and then also a guy named Sean Barrett who runs a company called Dr. Dish.
3: Oh yeah, Dr. Dish is awesome. Um
4: so they're fantastic. Um have a lot of respect for those guys and they uh have really I think it was more or less Bren who who Coined the term regenerative ocean farming, right? Mm-hmm. Because even though I'm not technically in the ocean, there's you know this is a fluid system, mm-hmm. and you know little fish grow up to be bigger fish, and then they're eaten by yet bigger fish, and mm-hmm. um, so uh, the idea is that you know we we digressed for a second, but the the question was around what sort of benefit are we providing for the local estuary, and then the perhaps the broader system as a whole, right? Um, so oysters are filter feeders, uh, a market size oyster, um, about three inches in, in the longest dimension of the oyster is filtering somewhere in the range of 40 to 50 gallons of water a day. Hmm. Um, so imagine millions of those being in the water, how many, how many gallons of water are being filtered every minute, every hour, every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're filtering things out of the water that are potentially harmful to other plant life, other animals in the water. Um, and they're actually, so, you know, as somebody who might consume an oyster, you might say, oh, well, I don't want to be eating that. I was
3: just going to ask you that. <laughs> um,
4: it, it's a question I've received before. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's fascinating that an oyster, which is, relatively speaking, a very simple organism, actually metabolizes those harmful things, mm-hmm. um, for lack of a scientific word to be using. Right. They metabolize those harmful things into nutritious and for many people delicious, uh, tasting product. Um, and it's, it's fascinating. I mean, I am not a marine biologist, so I don't really know enough about the biology of the oyster to kind of explain it from a very professional and scientific background. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you that, um, oysters are very simple organisms that are sucking in water and excreting water constantly. And anything that they get into their bodies, uh, that are potentially harmful to them, they actually spit out um, and and therefore, like you 're not going to get anything harmful to you mm. in the oyster that the oyster has ingested Now, there are ways in which an oyster could be potentially healthful. Uh, harmful to your health. Okay. Uh, But that has more to do with flaws in processing and Hmm. not keeping an oyster refrigerated or something like that. Right. Um, And that's where an oyster is more likely to be harmful to your health than with regard to the um, minerals or um, food that they're sucking into their bodies and then metabolizing. So uh, their metabolism process is is essentially... Incubating you against any sort of harm to your health Mm. Um, Furthermore the equipment that I use and that oyster farmers use generally speaking actually provides somewhat of a artificial reef system for juvenile fish So the equipment that I'm using in the water provides sanctuary to these little fish to hide in so that they're not uh, as vulnerable to uh, predators as they would be otherwise Mm. so When I haul those cages out of the water, that process that I described earlier, we are constantly kicking little baby fish overboard. (laughs) Um, And I mean, we see probably tens of different species of of fish and crabs and eels and et cetera in, Mm. in our cages all the time. Um, and,
3: but is that, is that an issue that they're caught in the cages or no, they just swim in? No, no, I mean,
4: they're, they're free to swim in and out. I mean, they're coming up and, uh, so it's not really an issue. I mean, we're not, uh, you're just letting them go. Yeah. We're, we're (laughs) letting them go. We're, uh, you know, much the same as if you raised a reef up off the bottom of the ocean floor, you'd have fish coming up with that reef. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, thankfully we're not doing that to reefs. We're destroying them in other ways, but, um, you know, this, this equipment serves as kind of an artificial reef and the the fish aren't getting caught, so to speak, like uh, you know, mm-hmm. or or killing them. Uh we are catching them inadvertently by hoisting this equipment out of the water. We kick the little baby fish over. Um and they're free to swim back and, and find another cage to to hide in and, and swim about in.
3: Right. That's really interesting because I think a lot of um I don't know a lot about the Peconic. Um But I know a lot of places where oysters are cultivated um, are bodies of water that have been overfished and where there's efforts to bring back the ecosystem, like Mm -hmm. the Chesapeake Bay, for instance. So like somewhere um, like that, where if there's oyster farms are being set up where you really are trying to get those like like different species of fish back, like that could potentially hundred percent, yeah.
4: hundred yeah. uh, percent. I mean, and you don't even have to go as far afield as the Chesapeake, not that that's that far, mm. but right here in New York City. Uh, yeah. I mean, you have um, an organization like Billion Oyster Project that mm. is putting in reefs. I think they have 22 sites around New York City. Yeah. Um, and if you look at you know water quality uh, data that they've collected over the years, I think Billion Oyster Project has been around for something like 15 years at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and you look at the water quality data, it's it. those oyster reefs are helping to improve water quality in those areas. Yeah. Uh, not to mention the fact that these reefs are serving as sanctuary for the little baby fish. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, we're talking about a, in terms of a, oysters, I think provide a very much an outsized contribution to our food system as a whole. Um, I mean, you know, I think oftentimes um, there's a, Uh, policy guru and um, author who I really like. His name is Carl Safina. Mm
0: -hmm.
4: Um, And he talks about the idea that um, our mental grasp of the physical world usually ends at the waterline. But the interrelationship or just straight relationship between land and sea is very real. Mm. Um, And oysters are not only helping out the estuaries, but they're helping out the land too, because what goes into the water comes back out in the form of rain and, and air quality as well. Right. Um, So a a really simple organism, um, oysters are providing a hugely outsized contribution to the health of our environment and the health of our food system.
3: Right. So and so you've been doing this now for just a couple of years, two thousand sixteen, yeah, right? three years. Three years, um, and you've had it seems like a lot of success in getting your oysters into restaurants in New York. And like, what what has the demand been like? Um, how much is there? Is it still growing?
4: Thankfully, there's a lot of demand for oysters. Yeah. Um, you know, I've I, I will say I've I've been lucky. Um, you know, uh, the there's a lot of demand for oysters. Um, I think if you can grow a good oyster, uh, you should be able to sell it. Um, whether that be what I do where I sell directly to restaurants or through a wholesaler or distributor.
3: Do you only sell to restaurants?
4: I only primarily, I would say like 90 plus percent, 95 plus percent of my business is selling directly to restaurants. Um, and you know, I have my own kind of thinking and philosophy on that as opposed to going through distributors. I've been approached by distributors. Um, certainly as I continue to grow more and more oysters, it's going to become more and more difficult for me to self distribute. Mm. Um, so these are challenges and, and kind of good problems to have, so to speak. But, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, those are those are some of the things and obstacles or, or challenges that I'm going to be facing um, in the next year or two. Uh, but you know, we have a lot of demand for oysters. Um, I'll speak kind of industry wide. Yeah. Um, there are also a lot of people producing oysters, um, so there's you know, it is somewhat commoditized, um, and I think that you know, I am trying to separate. Pico oysters from other oysters a little bit by trying to build brand. Um, obviously, I'm not the only person who's trying to build brand, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, we've we've had some initial success. By no means are we out of the woods in terms of the success of the company. Um, but, uh, you know, I think we have a, a good cornerstone to be building upon.
3: Right. That That's actually, that made me think of something when you said that, um, kind of differentiating um, what you do. It is are there ways that oysters can be farmed that um, are damaging? That are uh, like, are I guess like when someone is is out and choosing oysters, um, is there a way to to choose fr- you know oysters that are from farms that are doing things right? Are there like I, I'm curious. I th- I think when it comes to food on land, we have this very clear like, well I'll buy from the local farmer or I'll buy organic because mm-hmm. they're not using pesticides like. Right. Is there a thing to look for? Like, oh, they're doing this thing that <laughs>
4: so um yes and no. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, there is no such thing as like an organic label mm-hmm. um for for seafood, uh certainly not for oysters. Right. Um the there are definitely aquacultural standards and practices uh that we number one have to adhere to, but then there are other like there's something called best aquacultural practices, which is like a a international organization that actually does kind of like audits of farms. Um, they are, as far as my exposure to that goes, they are more commonly focused on like recirculating aquaculture systems Mm -hmm. that are growing like fin fish in above ground pools. Um, but, uh, we definitely have processes and, um, Uh, regulations that we have to adhere to Uh, those regulations differ from state to state. Uh, New York city or New York state is governed by the Department of Environmental Conservation Um, and we have regulations that we have to adhere to with regard to you know uh, how quickly once harvested an oyster has to be at temperature Um, and that's more with the idea of human health in mind than anything else. Right, food safety. When it comes to just kind of organic practices, um, or not even organic practices, but like good practices, that's where kind of the BAP, mm -hmm. breast aquacultural practices, comes in. Um, So the the short answer to your question is kind of like a yes and a no.
0: Hmm.
4: Um, You know, I don't know how you would, as a consumer, go to a restaurant and see a dozen oysters listed on the menu and be like, well, I'm going to get the pemaquids. As opposed to the Picos, because I've heard that the Pemaquids are, you know, a, a better yeah. uh, farmed more sustainably. I mean, I, I think I'm sure that there are people who would take issue with what I'm about to say, but I think by and large, you'd have to be doing something really wrong on an mm. oyster farm to not be providing a net benefit for the environment.
3: Right. No, that I mean, that I think that makes sense, especially compared to other, f- <laughs> you know, if you're. If you're making a, a choice between oysters and some other source of um, sure,
4: I mean between oysters know. and beef, right? Like I, I think you know the 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 evidence is out there that like if you take it purely from an environmental perspective, mm-hmm. oysters are going to be a, a better choice than than a than a steak, right? Um, you know, uh, the cattle lobby probably is going <laughs> to come down on me, right. uh, but <laughs> we're, you know,
3: it, it's a, it's a hard time to be talking about, um, this, you know, at a time when, uh, people are very scared that they're, that burgers are going to be taken away from mm-hmm. them. However, um, I, I eat meat. I don't know if you do, I do. but, um, and I really believe in regenerative agriculture and grass fed, um, beef and, but, right, when you make these comparisons, I mean, I think it's it's completely logical to say, like, this probably requires less resources if we're making that comparison.
4: Yeah. I um, mean, I'll, I'll add just one other thing kind of uh, a little bit, out, not quite out of left field, but mm-hmm. a little bit out, out there is that many people are now actually considering oysters vegan. Um,
3: what? Yeah,
4: which is <laughs> – so, yeah um, – uh, uh there are probably very few vegans I who think actually. We're do gonna so. get
3: some angry vegans now. <laughs> Maybe we will. I, I welcome <laughs>
4: I welcome the feedback. Okay. Um I, I welcome. What uh, would the
3: reasoning be? I mean, so the
4: reasoning being that number one, oysters are a sedentary animal, so they do not move. Okay. Um they do not have a central nervous system, so they do not feel any pain. Hmm. Um the same extent that like eating a a leaf of lettuce, you're inflicting pain on that leaf of lettuce. That's the same kind of pain that you would be inflicting on an oyster. So if you think that you're eating a, uh, that you're causing pain by, in, by eating an oyster, uh, a leaf of lettuce, that's the same amount of pain that an oyster would feel.
3: Um, if you think you're causing pain by eating a leaf of lettuce, like right. you're going to die because what are you going to eat? Exactly.
4: <laughs> um, and then what we've gone into greater depth on is the environmental yeah. benefits of oysters. Um, and, you know, a lot of that... So, uh, like, in
3: other words, if you're eating vegan as an environmental choice, sure. then oysters could be part of that.
4: Uh, right. I would say yes hmm. um, to that question, right? Is that... Uh, and, and there are articles and... I huh. mean, look, there's... Everything's up for debate. Right. Uh, but there are people who are decidedly vegan and who do eat oysters. Huh. Um, and... Uh, and I could point you to a handful of articles from reputable sources that uh, make a pretty solid argument for why they should be considered vegan.
3: Interesting. I'm definitely going to read more into that. It's just really fascinating. Well,
4: I'll send you a couple links, and if (laughs) you find anything else, send them back to me.
3: Perfect. (laughs) Um, Okay, so on that note, I think we actually have to wrap up. Um, So before we go, uh, Peter, Where can people um, find Pico Oysters if they want to try them?
4: Thank you for asking. Mm -hmm. Uh, So number one, they can contact me directly. Uh, I have an Instagram handle. I have a website, (laughs) picooysters.com, P-E-E-K-O-O-Y-S-T-E-R-S. And then uh, restaurants all around New York City, Nassau County. Um, I try to keep an updated list on my website, but... Um, I am currently not distributing. Uh, When I resume distribution, probably in about May. Okay. Um, uh, Gramercy Tavern, uh, Craft, Oceana, um, Flex Muscles. uh, The the list goes on. I mean, uh, for me to rattle off all the restaurants that I distribute to um, is going to be a little bit difficult, but those are some of the ones that come to front of mind. Mm. Um, And I usually try to keep an updated list on my website.
3: Perfect. Well, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it.
4: I'm enjoying it. Thank you.
3: Thank you all so much for listening to the Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. I'll see you next Wednesday.